This is VOA News. I'm Tommy McNeil. The Israeli military says it has rescued two hostages from captivity in the Gaza Strip. It identified them as Fernando Simon Marmon and Louis Har. It says both men were kidnapped by Hamas militants from Kibbutz, Kibbutz in the October 7th cross-border attack. Rescue took place early Monday in the southern border town of Rafa in a raid that killed at least seven people, according to Palestinian officials. The army says both men are in good condition. Israel says around 100 hostages remain in Hamas captivity, as well as the remains of about 30 others. The death toll from a massive landslide that hit a gold mining village in the southern Philippines has risen to 54, with 63 people still missing. The landslide hit the mountain village in the province on Tuesday night after weeks of torrential rains. The provincial government said that in a Facebook post on Sunday that 54 bodies had been retrieved. It said 32 residents survived with injuries, but 63 remained missing. Officials have said among those missing were gold miners waiting in two buses to be driven home. When the landslide struck and buried them, more than 1,100 families have been moved to evacuation centers for their safety. NATO's leader is warning that Donald Trump is putting the safety of U.S. troops and their allies at risk. The alliance's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg issued a statement Sunday after the Republican presidential frontrunner said Russia should be able to do whatever the hell they want to alliance members who don't meet their defense spending targets. Stoltenberg said the 31 allies are committed to defending each other's. Trump's remarks caused deep concern in Poland, which has been under Russian control more often than not since the end of the 18th century. More VOANews.com. This is VOA News. Ukrainian officials say that Russian forces launched 45 drones over Ukraine in a five-and-a-half-hour barrage. The Ukrainian Air Force said it shot down 40 of the Iranian-made drones over nine different regions, including on the outskirts of the capital. The strike comes as President Volodymyr Zelensky continues his reshuffle of Ukraine's war cabinet after naming a colonel as the country's new military chief Thursday. He appointed a lieutenant general as the new commander of Ukraine's ground forces, with Kiev trying to maintain momentum against attacking Russian forces as the war enters its third year. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been hospitalized again following symptoms pointing to an emergent bladder issue. In a statement, the Pentagon said that Austin was transported by a security detail to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center around 2.20 Sunday afternoon. Austin has now transferred authorities to the Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks and remains in the hospital. Austin was diagnosed with prostate cancer in December and continues to deal with complications from his treatment. Police say a woman in a trench coach, coat opened fire with a long gun inside celebrity pastor Joel Olstein's Texas megachurch before being gunned down by two off-duty officers who confronted her. The afternoon shooting at the Houston megachurch sent worshippers scrambling out of the building between busy Sunday services. Authorities say the woman was dead and a five-year-old boy with her was critically wounded by gunfire. They also say a 57-year-old man was wounded. Houston police chief praised the officers for their quick actions. Osteen says the shooting could have been much worse if it had happened during the large 11 a.m. service. Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and the Kansas City Chiefs are back-to-back Super Bowl champions. Mahomes threw a three-yard touchdown pass 
And with three seconds left in overtime, and the Chiefs rallied to beat the San Francisco 49ers 25-22 to on Sunday in the second overtime game in Super Bowl history, becoming the first repeat champs in 19 years and ninth overall. With pop star Taylor Swift watching boyfriend Kelsey from a suite, the Chiefs captured their third Super Bowl title in five years and firmly established themselves as a dynasty. Recapping our top story, the Israeli military says it has rescued two hostages from captivity in the Gaza Strip. It identified them as Fernando Simon Marmon and Luis Har and says both men were kidnapped by Hamas militants from a kibbutz in the October 7th cross-border attack that occurred. More at VOANews.com. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Botte in Washington. Today is Monday, February 12, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Nigeria mourns the death of an influential banker. It's indeed a sad loss uh, for the family. Uh, the Nigerian government uh, deeply uh, regrets this loss and uh, wish that the family will have the fortitude to bear the, this loss. South Africa Julius Malema says he has a solution to solving the country's years-long shed, uh, low shedding problem. We'll examine factors in Somalia's high maternity mortality rate. The Zimbabwean politician blamed for dismantling the main opposition coalition breaks his silence. I'm not the one who recalled them, but they were recalled by the party. I was only using the vehicle to achieve that uh, objection. The party was actually going into the wrong direction. And Israel's prime minister defends his intention to launch a military ground operation in Rafah. Those stories plus our Black History Month and Samson O'Malley's sports at the African Cup of Nations are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Nigerians are mourning the death of Roosevelt Herbert Wigwe, the CEO of Access Bank Holdings. Wigwe, his wife, son, and others died Friday when the helicopter crashed in California. The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board said on Sunday it is investigating the cause of the crash. I spoke with Information Minister Mohamed Idris Malagai about the tragedy shortly before Nigerians' super eagles took to the pitch against Ivory Coast in the finals of the 2023 Africa Cup of Nations. Let me use this platform to uh, commiserate with the family of uh, Chief uh, Wigwe and all the people in his company, especially the Access Bank uh, family. It's indeed a sad loss uh, for the family. Uh, the Nigerian government uh, deeply uh, regrets this loss and uh, wish that the family will have the fortitude to bear uh, this loss. Uh, of course, uh, his uh, passing is a great loss to not just his family, but to the banking industry, to the financial sector, and to uh, Nigerians as a whole. Uh, indeed, he was a very hardworking man, and uh, we had hoped that he would be alive to continue to contribute his quota towards the development of our dear nation. Unfortunately, he has passed on, so uh, let's... Uh, 
takes soldiers in the Philippines, most Nigerians that uh, uh, God gives life and he takes life. But we, we really regret this and we hope that uh, God will give the family the fortitude to bear this irreparable uh, loss. This sad news is coming on the day that um, Nigeria is going to be playing in the Africa Cup of Nations final. Even uh, Peter Obe was saying that uh, the late bank president was his friend and he did not even have the spirit to go to the game. So I'm just imagining how much impact this is having on Nigerians. Today, the sad, the sad situation, all Nigerians will take heart and to not to be completely dampened by this. Uh, we pray that the super eagles will get strength, uh, get themselves together and go ahead to win the trophy for Nigeria. No doubt it's, had, it's having a very serious impact uh, as it is when uh, death such as this, of course. But again, uh, we have to pull ourselves together, give each other strength. Mohamed Idris Malagai is Nigeria's Minister of Information. He was speaking with us from uh, the capital, Abuja. We will bring you the results of that game in our sportscast. In Zimbabwe, the man blamed for contributing to the dismantling of the country's main opposition, Citizens Coalition for Change, also known as Triple C, says he was only an instrument by party members to achieve certain objectives. Segenzo Shabangu by claiming to be the Triple C's interim secretary general, was able to get the backing of the courts to recall Triple C members from parliament and prohibit them from contesting their seats again in recent by-election. Shibangu tells me that he had the authority to recall the members because the Triple C had deviated from the goals on which it was founded. I'm not the one who recalled them, but they were recalled by the party. I was only used as a vehicle uh, to achieve that uh, objective. The party was actually going into the wrong direction. Everything was centered on one person. The party was deviating from its uh, founding principles. So we had to find a way to correct those things. But the party said they do not recognize you to take the decision that you took. You don't have the uh, authority. I do. Uh, if I had no authority, I don't think I would be standing by now. And you will see the party coming together, the leadership of the party coming together, taking their rightful positions, discharging their responsibility, uh, moving forward, uh, giving again the hope of the people of Zimbabwe that there is still hope. Uh, we can still challenge this status quo, this establishment, and we can still occupy the, these zones that we occupied and do more in terms of service delivery. Let me get your response because some people in the opposition are saying that you did the bidding of the ruling ZANU-PF. Are you working for the ZANU-PF? I've never been to ZANU-PF. I'm bearing scars of ZANU-PF. So that is a far-fetched statement that cannot be proved. The toxic politics of our country is that anybody who has got a different opinion, anybody who has got a different way of doing things, who disagree with maybe the status quo, you are regarded as ZANU-PF. So I'm not the first one to be regarded as working with ZANU-PF because I want I a different opinion to the How do you feel? Because it sounds to me now that uh, there is no opposition now in Zimbabwe, that in Parliament... 
President Nagagua now has his two-thirds majority, and everybody say it's because of you. The opposition is there. Apparently, there is no leader of the opposition. But in terms of our constitution, if the leader of our political party walks away, resigns, uh, decides to fail to, to discharge his duties, the constitution is clear that uh, the vice president, who is the most senior, takes over the reins of that political party. Uh, so I'm sure there are consultations within the party on who should take over the reins of the leadership. Coming back to ZANU-PF, that they have got the two-faced majority, I've given them the two-faced majority, it's not correct assessment. ZANU-PF has enjoyed the two-faced majority before. Even if with their two-faced majority, we have held the ZANU-PF accountable because we were an authentic opposition political party. So to me, whether they have the two-faced majority or they don't have to say the majority, it doesn't matter. What matters is to hold the institution, is to hold the establishment accountable. Sigenso Shabangu is a Zimbabwe opposition politician. He was speaking with us from the capital, Harare. In South Africa, the leader of the opposition economic freedom fighters says his party will stop plans to do away with seven coal-fired power stations. According to the South Africa Mail and Guardian, Julius Malema made the comment on Saturday which, while launching his party's manifesto. Professor Sipo Sipe is a political analyst and the former deputy vice-chancellor for institutional support at the University of Zululand. He tells me that Malema is right because the issue of load shedding or power outages is not a technical matter but a political one. The issue of load shedding is not a particular matter. It is a, a political matter. What is happening in South Africa is a, a push for renewables. And uh, to do so, you need to make sure that the, the current system that relies on fuel technology and the fossil fuel does not work. So it is a self-generated crisis. We've had load shedding before. It was uh, resolved. But the people who resolved it were accused of corruption and they have not been actually found guilty and the state has not been able to bring a strong case against them. But they had to be removed so as to create a, a crisis. So Julius knows that very well, that this is a self-created crisis that can be resolved. But, uh, Professor, um, South Africa is talking about shutting down these coal power stations because that is uh, according to uh, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. They formed an agreement where South Africa was given money when the country was not ready. The Paris Agreement is to be supported for as long as it does not sacrifice our energy security. The most interesting part of it is that the people who are giving us money, the U.S., the U.K., France, and Germany, they are busy stockpiling coal, and they're telling South Africa to decommission their coal plants while they themselves are ensuring that there's energy security. As you know, Professor, elections are coming this year. Uh, is Julius Malema playing to uh, the politics of this uh, low-sharing issue? 
No, definitely. I, I think uh, people are frustrated with low trading. You need to understand that the damage it has done not only to the livelihood of South Africans, but to companies. Many companies have actually indicated that if we don't solve the low trading, they are going to go elsewhere. They're saying they're not in the business of charity. They're here to make profit. And if you can have a situation as we had last year, where for 332 days we had one form of load shading to another form of load shading. And we, this has led companies like Volkswagen, which has been in the country for almost eight years, has said we have to rethink whether we can continue. Professor Sipo Sipe is a political analyst and a former deputy vice chancellor for institutional support at the University of Zululand. He was speaking with us from Johannesburg. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, February 12. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports and our Black History Month Facts. Conflicts, a poor health system, and a lack of access to health care are still major factors in the high maternal mortality rate in Somalia. And the country's health officials, another contributor of high maternal mortality is the practice of female genital mutilation, which is a widespread custom in the country. On the line to Mogadishu, my colleague Harun Maruf spoke to Dr. Mustafa Awi Jama, the director of the Family Health Department at the Somali Ministry of Health. The maternal mortality trends in Somalia is, as we speak, is 621 per 100,000 life paths. That is, according to the UN train estimates, uh, 2022. Also, according to Somali Democratic Health Survey, which was a survey which was conducted in 2020 and a survey which is usually conducted every five years, it is 692 per 100,000 life paths. So that is the maternal mortality rate in our country as we speak currently. And how does that compare to other countries with similar circumstances, similar situation in Somalia? The maternal mortality in, in, in Somalia is actually one of the highest in the world globally. We are number one uh, in maternal mortality in the world. However, if you compare the surrounding countries, the rates does not differ as much. Maybe they are less than by 100 or 150 compared to our rates. But of course, Somalia is one of the... And what are the factors, the causes of this high rate of maternal mortality? There are many factors that, you know, as you know, the country of Somalia is now recovering from conflicts. And, you know, the health system of the country has been devastated over the last 30 years. There are many challenges which contribute to this high maternal mortality. One of them is the lack of infrastructure, lack of health workforce, conflicts, and, you know, emergencies that happen in the country. We are having recurrent emergencies. The country comes out from droughts, and immediately we enter to a flooding. So because of these factors, the maternal mortality and the health system in general is 
week in Somalia. Dr. Mustafa Awi-Jama is the director of the Family Health Department at the Somali Ministry of Health. He spoke with Makoldi Haru Maruf from Mogadishu. Despite mounting criticism, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has defended his intention to launch a military ground operation in Rafah. That's the border town currently sheltering more than a million Palestinians who say they have nowhere else to go. Views Berenica Baldera Iglesias has the story. A few days after U.S. President Joe Biden described the military response in the Gaza Strip as, quote, over the top, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared on ABC's This Week's show and reminded the world about the Hamas terrorist attack that killed 1,200 people and turned 240 into hostages. Uh, we were attacked, unprovoked attack, murderous attack on October 7th, the worst attack on Jewish people since the Holocaust. And let me tell you, uh, I think we've responded uh, in a way that goes after the terrorists and tries to minimize the civilian population in which the terrorists embed themselves and use them as human shields. More than 28,000 Palestinians, many of them women and children, have been killed in the war, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Netanyahu dismissed those figures, adding that while a plan is in the works to get civilians out of harm's way, his military will go ahead with a ground operation in Rafah. More than 1.4 million Palestinians, many of them displaced dozens, are sheltering in the border town. The United Kingdom, Egypt and Saudi Arabia have voiced concerns. Those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying, lose the war, keep Hamas there. And Hamas has promised to do the October 7th massacre over and over and over again. Entire families live in tents in Rafah and say they have nowhere else to go. Laila Abu Mustafa is one of the affected. If there will be more displacement, I'm not moving. I'm on the Egyptian border from one side and east of Rafah from the other side. I can't move. In Tel Aviv, meanwhile, protesters demanding the release of hostages still in Hamas hands blocked the Ayalon Highway on Saturday. Efrat Machikwa's uncle is still in captivity. We are here today to tell everybody that we're so fed up with what's going on. And we know the people are with us, but we don't feel the government is, and it's about time. Netanyahu was asked on ABC whether he knows how many of the roughly 132 hostages in captivity are still alive. I think uh, enough to warrant the kind of efforts that we're doing. Uh, and we're, we're going to try to do our best to get all those who are alive back and frankly also the bodies of the dead. In his assessment, the military pressure applied to Hamas was a key factor in securing the recent release of 110 hostages and affirmed that, quote, victory is within reach. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, Washington. It's time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is something O'Malley in Abidjan, Africa Coast, at the Africa Cup of Nations. A very good Monday morning to you, something.
Good Monday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport from the Alassane Watra Stadium here in Abidjan, where Ivory Coast came from a goal down to defeat Nigeria 2-1 and win the 2023 Africa Cup of Nations final at Alassane Watra Stadium in Abidjan on Sunday night. The Elephants secured their third continental triumph and became the first host champions since Egypt in 2006, thanks to second-half goals from Frank Kisei and Sebastian Haller after the Super Eagles enjoyed a 1-0 lead at the break, thanks to William Truce Ekong's header. Sebastian Haller was a hero for Ivory Coast again as the Elephants came from behind to beat Nigeria and win the 2023 Africa Cup of Nations final on home soil. And talking about the 2023 Afghan final, with the curtains officially closed on the tournament, CAF awarded the best performance of the tournament. Author of Kudavu's two assists in the final, Simon Adingra, was named the CAF man of the match for the final. Despite not finishing at the summit as champions, Nigerian captain William Trus Ekong walked away with the Best Player Award. Guinea-Bissau danger man Emilio Msue Lopez walked away with the Puma Golden Boot Award for his five goals and saw him top the goal-scoring chart of the competition. Bafana Bafana shortstopper Rowan Williams was voted the best goalkeeper for his heroics with the bronze medalist, which includes a record four penalty saves against Equatorial Guinea and another two against DR Congo. In addition to finishing third in the competition, Bafana Bafana's bronze medal is accompanied by the Fair Play Team Award. Away from the awards now to some quick facts and figures from the final match of the CAF Africa Cup of Nations. For the 12th time in history, the host country have won the CAF Africa Cup of Nations and the first since Egypt in 2006. For Côte d'Ivoire, this is their third title ever after 1992 in Senegal and 2015 in Equatorial Guinea. Nigeria have been eliminated in the CAF Africa Cup of Nations final for the fifth time after 1984, 1988, 1990 and 2000, equaling Ghana for the joint most aside that's finished as the tournament runners-up. Amir Safai is the very first manager to win the CAF Africa Cup of Nations tournament without starting the edition as the head coach of his team. Why Nigeria's Williams Truce Ekong is the first defender and fullback to score three goals in the same CAF Africa Cup of Nations edition since Opta collects this data. Away from the Africa Cup of Nations, the men's marathon world record holder Kenya's Kelvin Kiptum has died in a road accident in his home country of Kenya. He was aged 24. He was killed alongside his coach Rwanda's Gavis Hakiziamana in a car on the road in western Kenya. And that's it for these Monday edition of Daybreak Africa Sports coming to you from the Alassane Watra Stadium here in Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire. I am Samson Omale. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson, for your great coverage of the 2023 AFCON. Have a good Monday. And now for our Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 12. On this day, 1909, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as NAACP, was founded. The NAACP is the oldest and largest U.S. civil rights organization. Its main goal is to bring about social, political, and economic equality for black people. 
Also on this day in 1809, Abraham Lincoln was born in Hudgenville, Kentucky. Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. In 1863, two years after the U.S. Civil War started, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation to free black slaves in some southern states. Slavery was one of the causes of the U.S. Civil War. The proclamation freed all slaves in the rebellious or confederate states, but not those slaves in the states that were loyal to the Union. On this day, 1934, American professional basketball player William Felton Bill Russell was born in West Monroe, Louisiana. He played for the Boston Celtics of the National Basketball Association, NBA, from 1956 to 1969. A five-time NBA Most Valuable Player, Russell was the centerpiece of the Celtics dynasty, winning 11 NBA championships during his 13-year career. Along with Henry Richard of the National Hockey League's Montreal Canadiens, Russell holds the record for the most championships won by an athlete in the North American Sports League. He died July 31, 2022 at age 88. Those are your Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 12th. That's it for this Monday, February 12th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for beginning your week with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am Jim Barton, Washington, wishing that you will have a great week.